Hey, good morning. It makes my heart so happy to see all of you guys connecting and being in conversation with each other, being in community with one another. It is so good. So regardless of whether you're here with us here in the East Auditorium or you're joining us in West or online, it's good for us to be together in worship this morning. My name is Pastor Mike. I'm one of the pastors here on our pastoral team. And we are in our fourth week of our Happy Trails series in which we are tackling the stories from Paul's missionary journeys. And so as a reminder, we're following the journey of Paul and Barnabas as they move about the Mediterranean and throughout the Greek-speaking world. And so a quick recap on what we've touched on thus far is that in our previous weeks, we talked about how Paul started in Antioch and Paul and Barnabas moved to Cyprus all the way up to Pamphylia, where Perga is. And then they moved even further north into what is modern-day Turkey, but was a heavily Greek-influenced area of Galatia with Antioch and Iconium. And so in their story, as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, we start to see a trend about what is happening in Paul and Barnabas's missionary journeys. They get to a new town, a place that is full of both Jewish people and Gentiles, or Greek-speaking, Greek cultural people, and they come on a Saturday, they come to the synagogue, and they begin to preach about Jesus. And this is the first time anybody in any of these areas has ever heard the name of Jesus. And so they preach, and there are some people who hear the story about how God has done all of these things in the past, and it's all leading up to Jesus being the Messiah and Savior of the world. And some people are like, yes, this is amazing news, and they're so excited to hear it, and they accept, and they believe right away. But in some of these towns, opposition also grows. Then especially among the Jewish leaders, they hear this story, this new message, and they see Paul and Barnabas as heretics, people that they don't want preaching in their community. And so they organize mobs and try to run them out of town or try to stone them. And so you have this repeated pattern of the word being preached, the acceptance by both Jews and Gentiles, but then ultimately some of the Jewish leaders gathering up a mob to run them out of town. And so you'll notice a little bit of that pattern comes up in our story today, that our story takes place in Lystra, which if we go back to our map for a second, you can see that Lystra is just south of Iconium where we were last week. And so again, they're in this Greek-speaking, Greek cultural area in which they're doing this ministry. So when we go to the Bible, it says, while they were there at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Then, looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, Stand up! And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, These men are gods in human form. Now what's super fascinating about this story is that this Greek-speaking world that Paul and Barnabas are living into, they don't really have any conception or framework for what Paul and Barnabas are doing outside of their own history and culture, which is the Greek pantheon. And so when they said these men are gods in human form, 
they in fact give them names and they think that their gods that are in their Greek pantheon have come into human form. And so they look at Barnabas, who is the strong, silent type, and they're like, yeah, this guy must be Zeus incarnate. And then they look at Paul, who never shuts up and says, that guy must be Hermes, the herald and messenger of the gods. Now, if you're listening to this story and this case of mistaken identity about who Paul and Barnabas are and then being mistaken for God sounds a little bit familiar, it sounded a little bit familiar to me too while I was reading it, that in fact it sounds a little bit like the plot of the 2000 animated film Road to El Dorado, in which two Spanish explorers go to Central America looking for a city of gold, and when they finally get there, they're mistaken for two gods. It also might sound familiar because it's the exact same plot line as 1983's Return of the Jedi, in which C-3PO is taken to be a god amongst the Ewoks as well. And so... This story of people doing miraculous things and being mistaken for gods is one that is familiar and a story that gets told over and over again. But in our specific context, Paul and Barnabas are mistaken for Zeus and Hermes. And this miracle that they perform of healing this crippled man happens right outside a temple that is dedicated to Zeus. And so after Paul and Barnabas leave, they think, man, those are our gods. We need to make sacrifices to them. So they get a bull, and they sacrifice the bull in the temple. And when Paul and Barnabas hear about this, they are distraught. It says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay. This is a sign of distress and mourning in Jewish culture. And ran among the people shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. Instead, we have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God. So here are Paul and Barnabas, and they don't want to be mistaken as gods. In fact, if I can have a quick aside with you for a second, I think there is something called the miracle worker litmus test. That if you ever find yourself in a place where you're like, man, that person seems like a prophet, maybe they're from God, uh, here is a good test to put them through. Because in the story of the road to El Dorado, the two Spanish gentlemen, they are all about being mistaken for gods because they know that it could help them get money and wealth. And so they're fully willing to exploit the people who have mistaken them for gods. And... Honestly, even if we think about the story of Return of the Jedi, even though they're on the side of the protagonist, it's so hard to think about these cuddly little teddy bears that get recruited to fight against an industrialized galactic empire on behalf of the rebels. But Paul and Barnabas, they're completely different. They say, look, we don't want your sacrifices. We don't want your praise. All we want to do is point you to the living God we know. Because this miracle doesn't come from us, it comes from God. And we want to tell you about who that God is and what that God is doing in your life. But here's the thing, that even as Paul and Barnabas deny being Zeus and Hermes and say, don't make these sacrifices to us, instead hear what we have to say about Jesus, it says that even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. Which is to say that even after Paul and Barnabas explained what was going on, the Greek-speaking people still 
didn't get it. There was still kind of a lost translation between what they had experienced in this moment of miraculous healing and what Paul and Barnabas were trying to say. So they committed themselves to staying there and to speak with them and teach with them. So it says the apostles stayed there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord. But then cue our dark, cloudy music. Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium. Remember that those were the last two towns that we had talked about and won the crowds to their side. After winning these crowds to their side, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. Now the good news is that most of us who have read the story know that Paul doesn't die here. This isn't the end. Because as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back into the town. And the next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. But as I'm thinking about this story and as I'm meditating on what is happening here, I think this case of mistaken identity happens on two fronts that for the Gentile population, the Greeks who were there, they don't have any sort of framework to understand what Paul and Barnabas are talking about, where their miracles are coming from. And so their framework is so flexible that they are willing to absorb them into their own pantheon. But when I think about the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders that came from Antioch and Iconium, they have such a rigid religious framework that even when they have this good news right in front of them, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, they can't accept it and they reject it. And when God is doing something new amongst them, the reaction is not one of rejoicing, but one of violence. And so it got me thinking, what happens not just to them, but what happens to us when our frameworks fail? What happens when all the assumptions that we have, everything that we were raised with, fails to help us see what God is doing in the world right now, today? Because all of us who have beliefs in these rooted and deep belief systems, they come from a confluence of different areas and assumptions that we make, some that are cultural, some that are political, and some that are religious. And they all come together and they create a framework for us in which we view the world. And sometimes it's hard for us to see the ways that God is moving because of how we were raised or what has become our normal. I'll give you a couple of examples. So, an example of a cultural assumption is that, particularly here in America, right, we love the concept of liberty. Freedom, freedom, freedom. It's so good. So when Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, we're all like, woohoo, that sounds great. But then when Jesus later says that in order to be the greatest amongst all the disciples, you must become like a slave, serving one another to the point of being like the Son of Man who sacrificed himself for the many. We get a little bit squeamish, right? We don't want to be slaves. We don't want to serve people. We want to be free, unbound. And so our cultural assumption sometimes gets in the way of us fully hearing what God might intend for us. 
Sometimes we get too wrapped up in our politics and we see all the awfulness that is happening in the world and in our government and we think, how could anything good come from the people that we didn't vote for? We think, how could any good come from the people that we disagree with politically? How could God possibly be moving amongst them when clearly God is only moving amongst us? Sometimes our religious frameworks, the ways that we were raised, sometimes get in the way of us seeing how God might be moving, that some of us were raised in churches with pews and organs and their clergy wore fancy dresses, and sometimes when those people come to a place like Christ Church, they're like, this isn't church. Like, how, how could God possibly be moving in this place that doesn't feel like anything I was raised in? But at the same time, sometimes we feel that superiority of like where we are and what we are used to and familiar with is somehow better and only God can be moving here amongst us and it can't be moving in any of those places that we've left behind. And so what we have to remember is that God's work through Jesus, it transcends all of our lenses that God's work is not limited to just the ways we are able to comprehend and understand how he is moving. And I can think of a time in my own life in which my framework completely and utterly failed to help me see where God is moving. Back when I was 11 years old, I went to Bible camp, and I had this counselor who was from Tanzania, and I don't remember what his name in Swahili was anymore, but he just let all of us call him Reuben. And so Reuben was this great guy. Uh, he had a ton of fun with us. I also remember that he slept a lot, but uh, regardless, I really enjoyed having him as a counselor. But one night he kept us up late, and it was like 11 o'clock at night, and him and the co-counselor that he was with, they both wanted to share their testimony of how they had come to know Jesus. And so the other counselor who is white kind of tells this story that seemed, you know, very familiar culturally to all of us American kids. But then Reuben tells this story that blew all of our minds at the time. So Reuben had talked about how he grew up in this village in Tanzania, and his family in particular, they were not Christian. They grew up worshiping their ancestors and their local tribal religion. But he was familiar with Christianity, that there were Christians and there were Muslims that also lived in this kind of pluralistic village. But Reuben said that when he was 19, he once got very, very sick. So sick, in fact, that he spent days upon days in bed. And at the end of it, he ended up going into cardiac arrest and he stopped breathing and his heart stopped moving. And as he tells this story, he says, in that moment in which I died, I could feel my spirit and my soul hover above my body and I was able to see myself from the outside and see my family and my friends who were mourning beside my bedside. And he said it was so weird and strange but then there was another soul that was in the room with me. And I had no idea why I instantly knew, but I knew that that spirit that was with me was Jesus. And Jesus said, come follow me. And so Reuben talks about how his spirit soul followed Jesus down to the local riverbank. 
And there he saw a teenage girl who was wading into the water. And Jesus said to Reuben, go to her. And Reuben says, how? I'm, I'm dead. And Jesus says, I will make a way. So Reuben has this experience where he comes alive again. And he wakes up surrounded by family and friends who are sad and mourning. And all of a sudden he's alive and they're rejoicing. And the first thing that Reuben says is, I have to get to the river. And his family's like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. You just, you've been sick. You've been in bed. What do you mean you have to get to the river? And Reuben's like, I got to go to the river. So he goes down to the river and sure enough, he sees the teenage girl that was in his vision wading into the water and he calls out to her and they begin speaking and the girl is distraught. She has tears in her eyes and as they begin talking, Reuben gets to know a little bit about her story and apparently she had had a terrible fight with her father and his father said that she had brought so much shame to their family that he wasn't sure that she could come home again. And so this teenage girl had gone down to the river and her plan was that she was going to keep walking out into the middle of the river until the river carried her away and she couldn't swim. And so Reuben says, I'm here because Jesus sent me. And this girl who was a Christian even though Reuben was not, heard that and believed him and came up out of the river. And Reuben concluded his story by saying, look, I was certain that there were two of us that were going to die that day, but if it wasn't for Jesus, we would be gone, but because of Jesus, we are both still here. Now, in my 11-year-old mindset, hearing this story, especially growing up as this white Lutheran American, I had no concept or framework for a story like this. There was nothing in my stoic Scandinavian background that could have prepared me to understand and appreciate a story like this. And so I admit that I did not believe Reuben when he told this story. I was like, no way. That is way too fantastic and weird there is no way that that happened. And I realize now as an adult that maybe within the story of Reuben, maybe God was trying to tell me something at the time, trying to tell us something at the time. That indeed, just because I couldn't imagine what it's like to be in a village in Africa, I mean, even the silly details of the story of like, I can't imagine ever being so ashamed that I would want to give up my life. And honestly, as weird as it sounds, as an 11-year-old kid, one of the thoughts that went through my mind is, what do you mean she doesn't know how to swim? Like me and all of my people just took a swim test and all of us 11-year-olds can swim just fine. How can a teenager not swim? Like it was silly stuff like that that all meant that I couldn't imagine that this story could be true and that God could have been working in this situation. And I think one of the things that I realize now is that all of our background, our cultural assumptions and upbringing, sometimes we imagine that it gives us superpowers, that we can see the world more clearly than anyone else. But I think the truth is sometimes 
our assumptions and our frameworks become blinders that keep us from being able to see how God is moving in the world. Just like the Greeks were unable to understand what was happening with Paul and Barnabas, and neither were the Jews, that all of their frameworks and assumptions had failed them. And so my encouragement to you today is to take some time in introspection in the ways in which you have heard the testimony of God in your own life and how maybe you've accepted or rejected certain stories because of your framework. And to encourage you to not be so married to your preconceived notions of what God is and is not that you miss out on what God is doing here and now. What God is doing today, not only in your life, but in the life of the people around you. Because as we get back into our story, it says that after preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. Now, this is so important to me because I'm looking at this courageous sense of faith that Paul almost died. He almost got stoned to death, and his first reaction is to go right back into the lion's den and continue to preach the good news and strengthen those who believed. And there's some resonance with Reuben's story as well, that he didn't let almost dying keep him from following what Jesus had asked him to do. The story continues on and it says they encourage them to continue in their faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And so they went back from Lystra to Iconium to Antioch. Then they went back and they returned to where they were coming from in Antioch of Syria. So it says they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria where their journey had begun. So they're back where they started from. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God, to do the work they had now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. Now what's great is that Paul and Barnabas, they have this amazing story of people who were strengthened and believed and the ways that God had performed miracles through their ministry and people had been healed and wonders had been done but they didn't keep it to themselves. That their testimony and their witness was not just to the places that they were missionaries to, but it was to tell the story of what God was doing in these far-off places to strengthen the belief of those in their hometown. And I think one of the things that it reminds me to do is that we ought to tell our own God stories that we need to be able to share what God is doing in our lives with the people around us so that they might see how God is working today in this moment. And in fact, we are also called to listen to God's stories, to keep our frameworks open and flexible that we might be able to see the ways in which God is working here and now, today, in this moment. Because I think one of the things that we forget about is how impactful our own stories can be. That when we share our testimonies of how God has been moving in our lives and what God is doing, we have no idea how that story continues on into the future. I can't imagine that Paul 
could ever conceive that we would still be telling his story of his travels and his testimonies of Jesus 2,000 years later. I can't imagine that Reuben, 22 years ago, could ever imagine that one of these 11-year-old kids was still holding on to his story of faith. And so do not discount yourself and your story that the ways that you have seen God are important. And people need those stories in their lives to strengthen their faith as well. Amen, good? Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you have married us to your story, that you've brought us into your family, that we might know who you are through Jesus, and that we might be strengthened in belief that you are bringing good things into this life and the next one. God, we ask that you continue to open our eyes, that no matter how we were raised, that we might not let that keep us from seeing you and the good works that you have for this world. Give us the courage to share our stories so that people might be strengthened in their belief and come to know you better. God, also give us the courage to go to the places that we were rejected, to the places that we've been pushed out of and feel abandoned by. Help us move into those spaces and continue to talk about you with boldness and grace. So God, we ask you to walk with us, to move with us, to be a presence in our lives so that we might continue to help build your kingdom here and into the future. It's in your name we pray. Amen.